All right. Good morning. All right. Signs of life, that's always good. Uh, welcome. Uh, if you want to stay for Sunday school, this is, uh, this is the place. I hate to kick you all out if you're not, but uh, that's, that's just how it works. If you haven't been a part of this Sunday school class, trusting God when it hurts, you can probably uh, join us and pick it up. It's probably going to be, you'll, you'll probably be track okay. So you are more than welcome to join us. Um, hopefully, if you have been part of this, you're, you're, you're finding us, you're in the right place. So this is trusting God when it hurts. Thanks again for being here. This is uh, session 11. So thanks for, for those of you that have been here regularly. Thanks for being here. And um, we are using, I am using a, uh, a book by a guy named Dan McCartney. It's called uh, Why Does It Have to Hurt? Kind of using that as the basis for what we're talking about this morning. And uh, in the previous 10 weeks, we've, we've really focused exclusively on the why of suffering. We've really talked about, uh, you know, why? Why would God ordain or allow suffering? Why do Christians suffer? You know, questions like that have been really our focus thus far. And, and those are important questions, but for, for all of us, when we actually experience suffering, you know that often the why questions and the answers to the why questions can seem, you know, pretty theoretical, pretty remote, pretty academic um, in the midst of suffering. And so asking and answering the why of suffering, it is important for sure, but we also need to ask the how of suffering. You know, how should we respond how do we respond when suffering comes? And oh, by the way, it will come. And so now is the time to, to wrestle with these, these questions. So this morning we, we begin, if you've been with us, we're, we're kind of beginning a transition, like I said, from more of a focus on the why to the how. And that's, that's where we're headed um, today, uh, next week, and even in the, in, in the weeks to come in our winter uh, term of Sunday school. So before we begin to look at those things, let me pray for us as we begin. Our Father and our God, thank you that we can be with you together this morning. God, thank you that we are called your beloved bride, the church. And thank you that we can, we can gather together and praise you corporately, collectively. Lord, that we can be with you together. And um, Lord, even now as we talk about these important things, we, Lord, as we've, we've, we know a lot of facts in our heads, Lord, we need you to transfer those to our hearts, especially when it comes to suffering, Lord. You know it's hard. It's painful. It's confusing. And, and so, Father, we need, to know, um, we need to know you in a way that uh, enables us to, to persevere, to be patient, to turn to you in our suffering. So we ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So when we talk about moving from the why to the how, I don't mean to communicate that those things are totally disconnected, okay? So we're not gonna totally disconnect the why and the how. Um, it's true that in suffering, uh, it's, it's hard to keep the why of suffering in our hearts and in our minds. Um, and, and we've said in weeks past that it's usually true that we don't know all the reasons why we're experiencing suffering uh, specifically. Okay, and, and yet I think we need to try to keep the why and the how together uh, as much as we can in our, in our hearts and minds. And so um, why, I, I want to start this morning with this question, 
and see if we can just think about this. Why might it be important to answer the how of suffering? Like, how do we respond? How do we endure suffering? Why might it be important um, to answer the how of suffering in relationship with the why? So for those of you that have been here in past weeks, you know, think about what we've talked about. We've talked about you know, why God would ordain suffering, why Christians, um, why Christians suffer. So how would those, why would it be important to keep the why and the how together? Yeah, Kathy. Yeah, very, very good. Let me, let me try to paraphrase or summarize that because I think you said that really well. Like, like the why informs the how. And, and specifically, you know, uh, you, you gave some real, you, I'm probably not going to paraphrase it, say it as well as you did. But, but yeah, the why informs the how. Like even, even as I think about it, I think, you know, because God is God and because we are his children and because he allows suffering for a purpose, there's, there's meaning to it, right? That would be one example where the why, you know, informs the how because it's not meaningless. It's not, uh, we don't just suffer uh, meaninglessly. Our suffering is not in vain. And so, yeah, keeping that and other things like that um, in, in mind actually do inform the how of suffering. Yeah, I saw, did, did you want to say? Yep. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that that's really good, Louise. So so you know, we've talked, and we'll talk about that this morning, because Jesus suffered, you know, and, and we're united to him. You know, we're called to suffer. He, he relates to our suffering. Like, there's, the, and, and so we suffer as well, and that helps us to identify with him, and then we can identify with others in their suffering. So some of that why does inform, you know, how we do that. We weep with those who weep. We mourn with those who mourn. Yeah. Maybe one more. Yeah, Joe. Yep. Yeah, 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 very good, very good, yes. So, so we, are, I, I, we are agreeing with that, that sometimes we can get so focused on the why that it does, it does hinder the how. Um, and, and so recognizing the limitations of sometimes answering the why, um, and we've talked about that, and yet we will try to keep those, those related we're not going to completely say goodbye to the why, but we're going to try to keep those related. One more, Louise. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Louise mentioned Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. There's a why. 
you know, and, and that informs, because he did that, we are identified with him, and it's, it's similar, it's the same for us. And so we're going we're gonna to talk about that this morning. Um, so, so you're already on track, and that's great. Um, here's the thing, as we prepare to talk about the how and the why, I said those two relate. We don't want to completely leave the why, but I just want to provide a caution again for those of you that were here earlier. Um, we, we, I, I shared this quote from this person who was suffering pretty substantially, and she said this, if one more person quotes Romans 8.28 to me, I'm going to punch them in the face, right? And, and so even though we don't want to leave the why behind, we want to continue to relate the why of suffering to the how, you know, if we're, if we're trying to comfort a friend, our first move shouldn't be to try and help them understand the why, okay? So really what we're going to do today is more for us personally, because when we first are trying to help our friends in suffering, usually the best move is to weep with those who weep. I'm so sorry, right? I'm with you, right? And, and to listen well. And I saw a hand up in protest. I'm getting nervous here. Yeah, yeah, when, when, when we're first interacting with a friend who's suffering, probably, I'm not saying never, but I'm saying usually our posture should be not trying to quote Romans 8.28, like trying to give them the why. It's probably better, especially initially, and it depends on your relationship with this person as well, but usually our best move is to say, I am so sorry, you know, I'm here with you, and to try and listen well and just walk with them in it. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's an important point. Thanks for the clarification. So again, what we're going to do this morning, I'm hoping each of us will take these things to heart for ourselves first as we talk about how Christians should suffer. So our purpose in the next weeks is to be clear about the how of suffering in relation to the why for ourselves. And that really sums up our objective for today. We're asking the question how Christians uh, should suffer and we'll try to answer the how of suffering in relation to the why. And I'm getting that from Dan McCartney in his book, uh, why does it have to hurt? So let's try and do that. And the first thing, the first thing I want you to know, if you haven't gotten, there should be some handouts for you, but the first thing that we need to know is that Christians are called to suffer. And if you've been with us, you're saying, John, you've already talked about that. I already know that. But it's such an important point. It's part of the why. And so we need to make sure that's clear in our minds. So the first thing when it comes to the how and why of suffering is that Christians are called to suffer, and why is that the case? Okay, because of sin? Yeah, we live in a fallen world, absolutely. Fallen world out there, and we're still wrestling with, you know, remaining sin within. For those of you that have been here for weeks and weeks and weeks, why are we called to suffer? Roz, because Jesus suffered, we're united to Jesus. We're called to suffer because Jesus suffered for us, and now united to him by faith, the shape of his life becomes the shape of our life. Suffering now, glory later. First the cross, and then the crown. Okay? Here's, here's what that means. Suffering for the Christian is a vocation. We're called to suffer. So 
When we tell our family and friends the good news about Jesus, we rightly emphasize, you know, the abundant life that is found in knowing Jesus. That is absolutely true. We were made in God's image for communion with God, and because of our rebellion and sin, we've been disconnected from life. Because God is life, we've been disconnected from from life, and Jesus has taken on flesh and come and lived the life we should have lived and died the death we deserve so that we can be reconciled to him so that we can be brought back into communion with God and this abundant life because there is no life apart from the one who is life. So yes, the good news is that there is abundant life to be found in knowing Jesus Christ. But there's also the reality of the gospel where following Jesus costs us everything. Jesus says to each of us, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? That's Mark chapter 8, verses 34 through 37. Or he says a very similar thing in John chapter 12. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. The abundant life is found in knowing and following Jesus. Amen? Amen? But he bids us to come and die. He calls us to follow him in the shape of his life. He calls us to suffer now and experience glory later. Here's how Peter says it in 1 Peter 2. He says, For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. When we're united to Jesus by faith, We're called to suffer. And that truth isn't isolated in those two sayings of Jesus and that passage from from 1 Peter. Although those would be enough for us to be convinced and convicted that that is true, that is is really what, what God is speaking to us, But the fact that Christians are called to suffer is the uniform witness of the New Testament and the entire Bible. It's the uniform witness of the entire Bible. Consider Acts 14, verses 21 through 22. When they had preached the gospel in that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Or Romans 8, 16 through 17. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ. 
And then the punchline, provided we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Or Philippians 1, 29, for it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Maybe you're saying, John, look, man, why, why, why are you beating this drum to death? And the reason I'm trying to emphasize this is because our culture, our culture preaches prosperity, and there are factions of Christianity that preach prosperity. And I'm trying to say the uniform witness of the New Testament and the Bible is that if we're Christians, we're called to suffer. There's abundant life, yes, in knowing him, but we're called to suffer now, and we're promised to experience glory later. Now, here's a few things we're not called to with respect to suffering. We are not called to be gloomy. We're not called to be gloomy. In suffering, we are called to be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. That's Paul's language. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. And so again, that doesn't mean that we pretend, like we ignore suffering, or we pretend we're okay, or we put on a mask. No, Paul says sorrowful. We acknowledge grief. We acknowledge pain, and yet, and yet because we suffer with Jesus, sorrow and joy can coexist. Okay? Does that make sense? Sorrow and joy can coexist. The other thing we're not called to with respect to suffering is we're not called to make ourselves suffer or to seek suffering. We're not called to make ourselves suffer or to seek it out, right? For example, Colossians 2.20 through 23 says that although self-imposed suffering may seem helpful, it is of no value. It is of no real value. In fact, self-induced or self-imposed suffering, what, what the result of that typically is, is pride and self-righteousness. Yeah, Kathy. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so there is self-sacrifice. Yeah, yeah. So no, I'm not talking about that. Um, yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, I mean, even fasting, though, I think of Jesus' words in Matthew 6, right? Do not do your fasting to be seen by others. That, so so there's, a, there's a self-imposed or self-induced suffering that I'm doing to be seen by others, and I think Colossians 2.20 is saying that kind of suffering is of no real value. Yep, yep. So we're not called to, to make ourselves suffer in, in the sense that, you know, we want people to notice that and be impressed by that, and we're not, we're not called to seek it out. In fact, I was going to talk about, I decided we probably didn't have time, I was, and, and maybe we can bring it up uh, in a future. I was going to talk about, like, um, when we can escape suffering, you know, when that, when that, when the Bible talks about, if, if we're able to do that, that's, that's a good thing to do, so, um, but let me, let me, let me move on on this trajectory. We are called, so we're not called uh, to be gloomy, we're not called to make ourselves suffer or to seek suffering, we are called to suffer in a certain way, Okay? We're called to suffer as Christians 
In 1 Peter 4.16, Peter says this, yet if, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. So we're called to suffer in a certain way, and we've talked about that. We're called to suffer with Jesus as a Christian. And in doing so, we will glorify God in the name of Jesus Christ. So united to Jesus, we're called to suffer as Jesus suffered. And this is because Jesus was called to suffer, and he did so in a certain way. So let me just be clear about this again. Jesus did not like suffering. He did not seek suffering. But in fact, in fact, he even prayed that it would pass from him, but he did not shrink from it. He did not shrink from suffering because he knew it was necessary. So it wasn't like he was seeking it out. Um, he didn't like suffering in and of itself, but he endured it because he knew it was necessary. For example, as soon as the disciples began to recognize Jesus' identity, Jesus started to tell them that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer, die, and be raised. And remember how his disciples responded? How did they respond? May it never be, right? They resisted that idea. And they continued to resist that idea. But Jesus responded that if he didn't die, how then should the scripture be fulfilled that it must be so? Dan McCartney said it like this. He says, Jesus' way to the kingdom of God was through suffering. Is it so surprising that the way we must take to arrive at the kingdom of God is through suffering? Yet if you're like me, When it happens, we just, I'm surprised. What is going on? What in the world? Right? And that's where 1 Peter says this. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. <laughs> that feels like God is speaking to me. Right? I mean, the slightest thing happens, and I'm just like, what in the world? What's going on? But he says, no, don't be surprised, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering. Hear it again? We're united to Jesus Christ. We're called to share in his suffering. His life, the shape of his life is the shape of our life. But rejoice insofar as you share in his sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Because we'll be glorified with him. Okay? Okay. So the question is, how should Christians suffer? And the first thing we need to be clear about is that we are called to suffer. Jesus suffered, and so we too will suffer. Y'all with me? And, and we're called to suffer in a certain way, which leads us to the next point. We're called to suffer as Jesus did. All right? We're called to suffer as Jesus did. And the reason that's true is because we're united to him. We're in Christ. And, and so if we try to bear our suffering on our own, Sooner or later, we'll come to the end of our own resources. Okay? So the question is, what does it mean in practical terms that we're called to suffer as Jesus did? And it, it means that we learn to endure suffering the way that Jesus did. And the first thing we learn from Jesus when he experienced God-ordained suffering in his life is this. Jesus prayed honestly. Jesus prayed honestly. You remember in the Garden of Gethsemane? My Father, 
if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. I mean, Jesus honestly prays, if it's possible, let this cup pass. You remember earlier in in the Garden of Gethsemane, before he prayed like this, he was honest with his disciples. He said, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. I mean, what we learn from that is Jesus was honest with God, he was honest with himself, and he was honest with his close friends. So first, Jesus endured suffering by praying honestly. And second, Jesus prayed using the Psalms. Jesus prayed using the Psalms. When Jesus experienced the most intense suffering on a Roman cross, he turned to the Psalms to give voice to his grief, his, abandon, his sense of abandonment, his shame. You remember how he prayed? He prayed from the Psalms, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I've heard it said that Jesus' cry was not a request for an intellectual, theological answer explaining the, the necessity for his atoning death. Jesus knew that already. This was not a cry for an intellectual answer. That's not what this was. This was a cry from the heart using the very words of the Psalms. The Psalms were Jesus' resource in times of suffering. And again, my buddy Dan McCartney says this, if we're going to suffer in Christ, with Christ, we ought to respond the way he did by the Psalms. If you know the Psalms, right, they express the full range of, yeah, Dan, Yeah, yeah, very good. Yeah, he probably prayed all of it, yeah, yeah. And, and the Psalms, we're gonna talk more about, that's where we're going in, in our next weeks. The, the Psalms are an amazing book. There is nothing else like it in the history of literature. That's a pretty bold statement. But there's nothing like it. There's nothing like it with the range of human emotions, joy, delight, right? There's joy, delight, thanksgiving, trust, hope, but at the same time, anguish, despair, anger, pain, confusion, and sorrow. So we can be extremely grateful that God gave us the Psalms. There's nothing like the Psalms. And so Christians are called to suffer, and Christians are called to suffer as Jesus did, was our second point, And really our third and final point this morning is that because that's true, Christians are called to pray the Psalms. If you're familiar with the Psalms, you know that there are certain Psalms, we're talking about suffering here, and you know there's certain Psalms that are identified as Psalms of lament, right? Psalms of lament. Those are psalms where the author cries out in distress. And in the Bible, there are similar poems and prayers uh, of of lament or distress in books like, um, let's see, I'm thinking Jeremiah, Lamentations, Isaiah, Daniel, uh, Ezekiel, and Habakkuk. So there's, there's, there's all kinds of resources for us. 
And what do we learn from these prayers, from these psalms of lament? So before we look at these in detail, I just wanted us to cover this this morning. What do we learn from the psalms of lament? Well, the first thing we learn is total honesty. Total honesty. Some of the psalms are really, really shocking in their content. Recently, I was reading through Psalm 109, um, just in my morning, morning reading. And I don't know that Psalm 109 would technically be a psalm of lament, but the language in it, just I, I was just shocked by it. The psalmist, uh, the psalmist begins praying like this at the beginning. Be, be not silent, O God, of my praise, for the wicked and deceitful mouths are opened against me, speaking against me with lying tongues. And then he goes on to say this about the people that are speaking against him. May his days be few. May another take his office. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children wander about and beg, seeking food far from the ruins they inhabit. May the creditor seize all that he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his toil. Wow. I mean, there's some, there's some, those will give you words for prayer, right? I mean, those are pretty, would you ever pray that way? Maybe some. Have you ever had those thoughts? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And what we typically do with prayer is we try to be good rather than being honest. And, and the thing is, God knows our hearts anyway, right? God knows our hearts anyway, and we try to stuff those away and pretend, and we try to be good in prayer rather than being honest. Yeah, Neil. That sounds like an imprecatory prayer to me. Yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's good. That's good. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I'll do my best. Um, I think, like I said, I think God knows our hearts anyway, right? He knows what we're thinking. He knows. And, and so I guess the way I would reconcile it is maybe I'd want to just voice what I'm really feeling to God this is where I'm at. Here's where it is, honestly, with respect to maybe you or others or myself. And just be honest about that. And at the same time, acknowledge that I can't change my own heart. Like, he's called me to love my enemies right? And just acknowledge, Lord, this is where I'm really at. I need you to, to change me truly from the inside. So that might be my attempt to, to put those together. Yeah. Yeah. And I've got a lot of, a lot of, a lot of let's go here, Terry. We haven't heard from Terry. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, and, and I think that's the thing. Like, like, would it be good if I responded with love toward my enemy? Like, like yeah, that'd, 
that'd be wonderful. But I think what we tend to do, I'm speaking for myself maybe, I think what we tend to do is we tend to say, stop it, stop. Like I have those thoughts or those feelings and I just try to push them away rather than be honest with God. And kind of to your point, like, like I'm talking to him honestly and as I'm doing that, I'm allowing him to know me truly. And that's what's going to change me. Not me saying, stop it, stop it, stop it, be good, be good, be good. There's, there's allowing him, he already knows me, but when I allow him to know me, even praying that, potentially God's going to change my heart because maybe he's going to remind me of, well, dude, that's you. How have I treated you? You know, so there's, there's transformation there. That's, that's true transformation. It's not just trying to be good or be better on my own. Yeah. And, and Beth Ann, that's good, and I probably can't summarize that. I think, well, basically, be careful what you pray for because God just might answer that prayer. And, and so I think there, there is truth to that, and I think there's also truth to um, that's who I really am right now. I mean, if I'm praying those things and thinking those things, that's just who I am, and that reminds me that reminds me that I really do need a Savior because that's who I really am. If those thoughts are coming in my heart just to say, stop it, stop it, stop it, doesn't really enable me to deal with the truth of who I really am before the living God. And so I, I feel like there's tension here, but I feel like we just too quickly try and be good rather than be honest. And um, But we... We want to, we want to be careful too. So, maybe that tries to unpack all of that. Yeah, Kathy. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Good. Good. And I think that spoke to what Terry was saying, that a lot of times when, we, when we're honest with God and speak to him honestly, that, again, we're allowing him to know us, and, and that he begins to, to transform us. And that's good. You can even see that in many of the Psalms. And really, that's, that's, that's kind of some of the point, is uh, total honesty would be um, how we're called, what the Psalms teach us, as we pray through them. And then, so total honesty uh, was, was the first lesson. And the second lesson was that honest prayer is an expression of faith. Honest prayer is an expression of faith. For example, Psalm 88. Many of you are familiar with Psalm 88. And you know that in Psalm 88, the psalmist's prayer never resolves to an expression of hope in God the way that 
pretty much every other psalm of lament does. But this very crying out itself is an expression of faith. When the psalmist says to God, your wrath has swept over me, your dreadful assaults destroy me. This is the end of Psalm 88. They surrounded me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. An alternative to the last line is, darkness is my closest friend. That's how the psalm ends. And yet, this psalm is an expression of faith. And my question is, why is that the case? Why would that, there's no resolution there. God, you have done this. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. Darkness is my closest friend. How is that an expression of faith? This is not a trick question. This is a safe place. A recognition that God is God. Say, say more. Like, how does that show that the psalmist believes God is God? Okay, yeah, that's the key thing. The psalmist is turning to God. I mean, that's the punchline. The psalmist is talking to God. It's an expression of faith. As long as you're talking to God in your suffering, that's an expression of faith. You're turning to him. You're talking to him and complaining to him. Remember the book of Job? I mean, most of that book is Job, what are you doing, God? This isn't fair. This makes no sense. Come down here. Let me talk to you about this. I'm in the right. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, and that's what this psalmist is doing, turning to God in faith. So honest prayer is an expression of faith. And then the last thing is that, that we learn in the psalms, in the psalms of laments specifically, is that they remind us that God is still God. David pours out his fears, his cares, and his confusion honestly to God in Psalm 4. And then the psalm ends this way. In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. With the exception of of Psalm 88, the psalms of lament usually have a turning point, like we talked about, as we pray to God and interact with him honestly, he's doing something. He's doing something in us. And so we see that in many of the psalms. There's a a turning point where the psalmist shifts from despair to confidence in God, from sorrow, from only sorrow to sorrow mingled with joy and hope. Not happy, clappy, you know, that kind of thing. But no, where there was only sorrow and despair before, now there's a shaft of light and a ray of hope and a, and a, a turning to God, even if it's leaning in his direction. Not that we just read through the Psalms and, you know, you can read a Psalm and it begins with sorrow and lament and then all of a sudden 
it turns to confidence and hope. But as we honestly interact with that psalm and sit with it and sit with God, honestly, he can transform our hearts similarly. So we learn to pray the psalms. We learn three lessons. Three, total honesty. We learn that honest prayer is an experience, is an expression of faith. And we also learn that we're reminded that God is still God. And I'm out of time. I really wanted to talk more about some other things, but uh, I need to wrap it up. And I'm going to wrap it up with this. Next week uh, is, is the final class of our fall term. Um, and we'll begin looking at Psalms specifically so that we can learn how to pray the Psalms together. Um, but I wanted to leave you with this. And, that, and, and, and the reason that we want to learn to pray the Psalms is because the Psalms ultimately are about Jesus. You remember in Luke 24, 44, he said to his disciples after his resurrection, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. The entire Old Testament, including the Psalms, is about Jesus. And that means that all of the Psalms in some way are related to him. And so since we're in Christ, united to him by faith, to pray the Psalms in our suffering, to learn how to do that, is to suffer with Jesus and in him and to suffer as he did. When we pray the Psalms, Jesus' own expressions of faith, hope, and love in the midst of suffering become our expressions of faith, hope, and love. And so that's where we're headed. Um, next week, we're going to look specifically at, at a, a psalm or two and, uh, and begin to unpack this. Let me pray for us. Our Father, you know that suffering, we're often surprised by it. You know that you know that we're often hard-pressed to know how, how to walk through those things. And we pray, Lord, that you would teach us to, to suffer as Jesus did. Would you, would you turn our hearts to your word, to the Psalms specifically, and help us find voice? Help us find the words that we may not have for ourselves. Help us find the words in the Psalms to speak to you and to suffer with Jesus and as he did. Lord, we pray that you would grow us in this way. We confess this morning that we are needy people, that we're babes, that we don't really understand that much. And so we pray you would instruct us and teach us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Thanks for your attention this morning. And uh, hopefully we'll see you next week. Thank you.